Hey folks, Randy Newberg here, back in beautiful Bozeman, Montana. And today I've got a couple of great guests coming to join me and Marcus. Uh, Y'all know Marcus Hockett. He's my lead field producer and occasional co-host on this podcast. Uh, I think this is going to be an interesting one. I've always been into or at least admired those who train birds to hunt. And we're going to talk about hawking, I guess, is the real term they call it. I call it falconry. I call it cool. I call it all kinds of things. But anyhow, before we get to that, uh, I want to thank Leupold for being the title sponsor of this podcast. Without them, so many of the things we do would not be possible. And I sure hope that when you're considering purchasing any type of optics, that you'll show support for them the way that they support the hunting community, the public land community, and conservation in general. Uh, great, great company. And then we have Orion Coolers. Uh, we just got back from Alaska. We were living out of our Orion Coolers up there. We had 265 quarts and an 85 quart, and we've calculated that is about what it takes to bring home two bears, uh, the hide skull and the meat that we processed while we were up there, uh, and a little room to spare, but they are big bears. Um, but go to OrionCoolers.com and you will find out more about these really, really great coolers. And if you use promo code Randy, R-A-N-D-Y, when you make your purchase, they're going to give you this really cool tumbler to go along with your cooler. And then we've got Onyx Maps. Uh, we've been doing a, a, what we call an e-scouting or cyber scouting series with Onyx Maps. And uh, I think that's going to release, let me think, uh, it might have actually, the day this podcast releases is the 29th, I think. So this is actually, this podcast it gets released three or four days after the first episode of this cyber scouting series that we're doing with OnX. But when you see this entire series, I think it's going to be somewhere between eight and 12 videos of how we do our desk scouting from home in a unit that's a thousand miles away. We're going to go through step by step. And when that's all done, I'm pretty sure everybody's going to understand why the OnX system is so critical to everything that we do. And for those of you who follow our platforms, watch our videos, listen to our podcasts, they have a promo code, Randy, R-A-N-D-Y, where if you use that, you get 20% off the purchase of any app products from Onyx Maps. So go to onyxmaps.com forward slash hunt and use promo code Randy. And the, the other remaining sponsor of this podcast is GoHunt.com. And I was just talking to a person today about the GoHunt system and how all the information, I used to have stuffed in file cabinets and outdated magazine articles and newspaper clips, and it was scattered all over. I had some in this folder on my computer, some over on this bookmark. Everything I need is now in one place, and it's in this place called The Insider, made by GoHunt.com. And we're talking about the best draw odds, research on all the units. The thing that, uh, the, the very first thing I read when they come out are their strategy articles. Uh, GoHunt Go has this guy named Brady Miller, and Brady does these super in-depth articles about application strategy by state, by species, by weapon type, by you name it. 
those are the starting point for me. And yeah, I've been doing this a long time. I've had every research service, every magazine you can think of, and there is nothing that compares to Go Hunt. And just like our other partners, they have a promo code here on the podcast that if you are a listener to our podcast, you go to gohunt.com and sign up for the insider and use promo code Randy. They're going to give you $50 of mad money, like free credit in their gear shop. In their gear shop is nothing but serious, serious hunting gear. So with that, we're going to click the mic over here and let everybody join in the conversation. And I think when you uh, hear this discussion, uh, I I think it's going to be interesting. Let's put it that way. So here we go. Thanks for following along, folks. All right, folks. I told you that we had some really cool guests today. Um, One of my dreams in life is to go falconing for either upland birds or waterfowl or small game. I don't know if you're allowed to falcon for antelope or white-tailed does, but I've seen golden eagles chasing them. So uh, <laughs> the, the two guys with us today joining Marcus and I uh, are my kind of conduit and connection to that. Uh, Chris Parrish, conservation director of the Peregrine Fund, and Leland Brown, the non-lead hunting ed coordinator from the Oregon Zoo. I got that right, Leland? Yeah, that's right. Oh, man. Random, yeah, it's random a connection there. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mouthful. <laughs> so Marcus and I were down in Boise this spring, and we ran into these guys, and we got to talking hunting. Uh, and then we got to talking about falconry. And afterwards, Marcus came up to me, and I think, Marcus, your comment was, we got to do some stuff with those guys. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, some really so, cool stories. Yeah. That's funny. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> we got to do some stuff with those guys. Yeah. Well, we're glad to hear that, Leland, because uh, usually we got to pay people to do anything yeah. with us. Yeah. But uh, now that we know most of what our tags are, uh, I think it was thrown out there that if we end up in Wyoming... Uh, there's some really good falconry upland bird hunting. Ab- there. Absolutely. I mean, if and and this ties immediately into the public lands thing. You know, being from out of state and being willing to travel at at any opportunity to hunt beyond that which we get drawn for, we're uh, we're all in. You know, uh, and we load up the truck from Arizona <laughs> and New Mexico and other places with our fly rods, <laughs> our shotguns, our rifles, and falcons and dogs, and and we go do it. And yeah, we we've been going up there for few years we have a, a buddy who works over there for one of the tnc um, properties the uh, nature conservancy mm-hmm. yep. yeah nature conservancy properties out there and so he knows the country well and we go out there and there's sage grouse and then we go farther we go up into montana we chase uh, i mean basically any of those larger game birds all the way down to the hungarian partridge and the pheasants and you, there there is a species of falcon or otherwise raptor that specializes in hunting those in nature. So this really? happens whether, whether we are involved or not. We are lucky enough to be able to involve ourselves as hunters, falconers have for a long, long time in this, this old tradition of hunting with falcons. And so we can go hunt uh, sharp-tailed grouse. We can go hunt huns. I mean, there you can, I know you have a fancy for, for, uh, forest grouse yeah i mean the goshawk the goshawk is is an, no a, way a goshawk yeah you can you can hunt rough grouse with a, a with a goshawk 
Now <laughs> there you go. <laughs> now I'm so, no. so in the last year, I've decided I need to buy llamas. Now I'm going to have to figure out the goshawk. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to tell you this right up front. I am not. I didn't come into working for the Peregrine Fund as a falconer. I came in as a wildlife biologist from right. the Arizona Game and Fish Department. Right. I was introduced to falconry by working with these folks at the Peregrine Fund, and the Peregrine Fund was founded by falconers. And yes, we're a raptor <laughs> conservation group, and we're also a bunch of you know crazy hunters as well, and yeah. using falcons and. And a and a, an old time falconer told me he says, "Son, I already know that you love fly fishing and hunting, and you have a family. You're working on you know a PhD. You have too many irons in the fire. You don't want to become a falconer right now. Yeah. But there are plenty of falcons out there that would love to have you along. So just go with them and let them manage all that. All right. So I'm, I'm I would not, advise you to do that. Okay. To, we have many friends of falconry who who are major fans of yours that I'm sure would be happy to take you out and go go hawking. They call it hawking, even though hawking. sometimes you're using falcons. Okay. Well. Yeah. I have a, a neighbor who says, you know, Randy, I don't need a fishing boat as long as you have one. That's it. That's <laughs> it. That's kind of how it applies for yeah. hawking, huh? Yeah. yeah well, same. Well, I'm still waiting for an invite to go hawking with oh, these guys, oh, too. So. <laughs> guy. Come on. You're just saying. <laughs> you guys are running together at all these events, all these conventions. Yeah, that's the only time we're together, yeah, unfortunately. We're, we're always, you know. You're, Chris, you're based in Arizona. Yeah, I'm down. Yeah. You're based yeah. in Oregon. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, well. I guess sounds to me like you need to be in Wyoming this year. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's going to have to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> uh, and Marcus, it, it, his background of having a fish and wildlife degree, am mm -hmm. I saying that right, Marcus? Yeah, or, fish and wildlife management. Yeah. And he did sage grouse studies for quite a while before oh, he came to work for perfect, us. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. He's he's pretty, you're going to have a, the reason he's in on this podcast, besides the fact that he keeps me honest, <laughs> and he, uh, he's like our science expert, right? is that he's going to be able to call the BS meter yeah. when it comes to sage grouse. Oh, cool. And predation and raptors and hunting and everything else. Nice. So Marcus has just been appointed the sage grouse expert for the fresh tracks on your own adventures, Randy Newberg. Hmm, I'm not so sure about is that. Is that a promotion? I think that's where I get on the computer and just Google whatever, yeah. you, whatever you ask me. That's the funny part. Whenever we're doing podcasts, we ask Marcus a question and he's like, I don't know. I'll ask Google. <laughs> Give me a second. <laughs> so we, yeah, yeah. Even though he knows the answer. He's, well, but you have to be sure. I mean, you don't want to, you know, you can... You got to live this stuff, you know, to, to, well, to but, stay fresh in it. But that that's you science guys. You need to be accurate. Us the media guys, we just make it up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were in Alaska last week, yeah. bear hunting, and one of our guys, I, I hope when Remy Warren hears this, that he doesn't think we're picking on him, but Dan, our new guy at the office, said, well, when it stops raining, that's when you guys should really hunt bears hard when you go up there. And I... I it just completely went over my head. I'm like, what the heck? And so Marcus is telling me, well, yeah, Dan heard Remy. He's listening to, what was it a YouTube video or a podcast? Something, I think, yeah, on Solo Hunter. Yeah, oh. where Remy said that. And so I'm like, ah, oh, classic media guy. He's just making this stuff up. Right. So we've been picking on Remy uh, with the content of this Alaska bear hunt. Yeah, sorry, Remy. You're a great guy. You're an amazing hunter. So, And you also have a great sense of humor. <laughs> but anyhow, that, that's us, us media guys. We're just like, yeah. yeah. What do they say? 86% of statistics are made up on the spot or something like that? <laughs> yeah. well, what is it? Lies, so. damn lies, and statistics or yeah, something. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> and then, uh, 
<laughs> then I come from the CPA world. We're sitting in my CPA firm right now recording this, where we have a motto that says, figures lie and liars figure. Uh, when the client says, well, I need this, I'm like, well, what do you want it to be? I'll make it be that. And they look at you like, you can do that? Well, yeah, anyone can. I mean, they're just numbers. I can make it be whatever you want it to be. <laughs> so that skill translates really good to being a BSer yeah. on a podcast. The IRS doesn't listen to this podcast, do they? <laughs> they do. They've mistaken me for someone who cares. Yeah, there we go. Right so, uh, well, I got to tell you that that's one of the problems in conservation is as scientists, and, and you might you might agree with this or not, uh, that they teach you how to do good science. They don't teach you what to do do with that science or how right. to turn it into conservation. Yeah. And that's yeah. where my passion lies is that it's great. You can do all the scientific publications you want, but one, they're very dry to read. It's hard to infer what the meaning is and then what you do with it. And so that's why I went into conservation. Um, I came at it from, I hunted, I fished, that, that meant, hey, I might be a biologist. That's cool. So I'm a biologist because I was a hunter and an angler, and okay. I'm a better hunter and angler because I'm a biologist. Right. And, and we all are, whether you went to school for it or not. Well, that, and, that's exactly what led me to go into film is because I did six years of working on as a field technician, basically, yep. biological work. And it's like, man, we do all the science, but... How do you convey that message right. to the general no. public? They don't understand no. the peer-reviewed journals. It's a translation, really. It's a different language yeah. for people to understand. I mean, you're talking about all these kind of esoteric terms and how it all translates into actual management is completely different. And the public doesn't have time to read 30 papers about, you know, sage grouse or right. raptor conservation they are they here. <laughs> what am i supposed to do just tell me what to do yeah tell nor, me why are, I should nor do are they impressed with reciting you know latin terms I yeah. Mean, yeah that's yeah. fun in the, in the classroom i guess really? uh, you get, cpas have taken the driest piece of writing <laughs> in the world the tax code and we've converted it into a very <laughs> lucrative profession you guys are going about this all yeah, yeah, we are. We are. Yeah. i see a business opportunity here <laughs> let's, let's, well I, and i think that's what leads to what we're talking talking about today, you know, yeah. the creativeness that I hope we bring to these, these conservation efforts in, in the style that we do business, I think is the key. Yeah. And, and I think that'll, I think that'll work. Well, uh, I'll just tell you guys up front that when I heard Peregrine Fund, I have been tainted by this messaging wherever it came from that you guys were a bunch of crazy wing nut screwballs. Oh yeah. Uh, and I'm I, when we were talking to these guys, I'm like, wait a second, the Peregrine Fund, they must send out their best and brightest here or something. <laughs> make it. But then I find out Peregrine Fund is started by hunters, founded by hunters. It's run by hunters. Yeah. And somehow along the way, you guys get, I, I'm not sure how or why, but I'm here to tell the world that I'm, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, And I'm excited to have a discussion here about raptors, about hunting, about how our hunting affects raptors. Kind of the, par I mean, let's face it, th there's a reason why I'm still, even though I hunt wolves and someday I might hunt mountain lions and I hunt bears, the fact that they're hunters, I, I feel a lot of kind of commonality. They're, they're like, if there's such a thing as a spirit animal, uh... I, th yeah. that, and these birds of prey, these raptors, I, when I see them, I can watch raptors all day long. I oh, think they're yeah. so yeah. cool. I mean, you, they're, the, they're the quintessential representation, tried and tested and true to making a living from their hunting. 
Yeah, they're not doing it as a tradition that we do. You know, they're not, they're not hearkening back to the days when they had to hunt to survive like right. we do, and and practicing it because we we feel it in our bone and in our core. They do it because they're feeding the babies. Right, they're feeding themselves. And I tell people that all the time. It's like, why should I care about raptors? You know, from where I come from, and and I I guess I have to say it now, but I, I grew up outside of Bakersfield, California. I mean, I'm the, the that's the, still that that's still like America. That's, to, to me, there, you get out there in that part of the world. That's still America. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's not California. No, California. When I <laughs> when I went to go play football in Arizona, and they said, you know, oh, California, where's your surfboard? And I said, man, I know more about you know oil derricks and pump jacks and and hay swathers. And, and yeah, I don't know anything about a surfboard. I come from Bakersfield. Have you seen the grapes of wrath? Let me tell you about yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. So so anyway, but but when they ask me, when my you know when the folks back home they ask me and they say, why should I care about raptors? You know, and and there was a fair amount of raptor shooting when I was a kid. You'd find them below the power poles. You know, oh, really? Dead. People would shoot them? Yeah. yeah, because they were thought to be a competitor. Hmm. You know, they eat our quail. Well, first off, as I learned studying wildlife management through time and, and deciding what I was going to do with my life and what education I was going to take, I realized that, hey, that one, there are all these different species that occupy all these different life zones that go from, from eating rabbits to eating small birds to eating larger things. Uh, and there are all these different raptors. So you can't just say, oh, that's a marsh hawk. Everything where I grew up was a marsh hawk. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I, what I say to cut to the quick, I just say that the fact that you have such perfect representations of the quintessential representation of hunting, these raptors are it. And every life zone we hunt big game in and fish in, there's a raptor specialist there that you can see. And you can see it from your classroom, from your office. You can see a kestrel. Watch a kestrel in a field near your office hunting grasshoppers or mice. And you look at the prowess that those critters have as, as, as hunters. And it'll not only change the way you think about hunting, I think it makes you a better hunter. Yeah. And so that respect that you have for those other species and yeah, the native, native lore, it's about, you know, the spirit, which which one, these kindred spirits that that you idolize, well, you idolize them for a reason. And it's no different than us idolizing a professional athlete or uh, Randy Newberg or, you know, whomever. (laughs) but did you notice when you walk in did you notice what we named our building i i did osprey yeah, Osprey. I this is the guy who studies raptors. I just, I just <laughs> shot stuff for a living. <laughs> We're so lucky here. I don't know what. I see more raptor or more ospreys in Montana than I do any other place I travel. Maybe it's just because I'm looking for something different. But yeah. I, the place I love to fish here up at Canyon Ferry Reservoir, good walleye fishing. Uh, it's so cool to see those osprey. Every post up there has an yeah. osprey nest, and you'll just see them all of a sudden. Awesome. It's like they come out of nowhere and boom. They're flying away with the fish. I'm like, man, I wish I could do that. I was just fish all day. It's the dream to be as good as they are. I was just going to say, and isn't it always when you're getting skunked and you're sitting there and you look at this like, how did they do that? You know know how humbling it is to be trolling around. You just towed your your wife's $40,000 boat to the lake with your $40,000 pickup truck. She just convinced you to buy $3,000 of the world's greatest computer screens that I still don't know how to use. If I added up all the money in gear and rods and tackle, I've got another few thousand dollars 
and I can't catch a fish, and here comes an yeah. osprey, like, oh, I'm hungry, I think I'll just dodge down here and get me a meal. Right. Yeah. I mean, that really makes you feel ter- right. like you're incompetent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All they got is a yeah. sharp pair of eyes, a pair of wings, and some talons. Yeah. Like, oh, dang it. <laughs> yeah. And the stakes are high for making a mistake. Maybe yeah. that's where we've gone wrong. Maybe. So, so speaking of that, and it is a different tangent, and I don't want to get off on tangents, but the description well, you we're just all gave. Tangents. The description <laughs> you just gave your wife. Can, can we get our wives to meet? Really? <laughs> yeah, because yeah. her boat, her tackle, her... Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. The reason we had to do this podcast today is tomorrow to salvage my marriage. Right. I'm going walleye fishing. Oh, man. If, if we don't go walleye fishing tomorrow, my marriage hangs in the balance. Man, yeah. I've, and I, I've told Marcus, I said, you know, if you want to keep your job, you need to make sure I stay married. <laughs> So when I got to go walleye fishing in the summer, you got to run this. You got to pick up the slack. No pressure. No pressure. Uh, that's good. No, Marcus has seen my wife's boat. It's like. Oh, yeah. She, oh, I saw it. I saw it on either Instagram or something. I saw a picture and I showed my wife. Yeah. I was like, look at this. This is Randy Newberg's boat. No, it's not mine. It's Kim Newberg's <laughs> well, boat. I didn't know that. Now I know. Yeah. No, I don't. Uh, much, much better conversation to have now. Yeah. I mean, right where we're, we're here in Bozeman, Montana, this is where we came for our honeymoon because she wanted to go fishing for two weeks yeah you, you done well sir you done oh, well. I, I, <laughs> I married so far up the ladder i didn't even know the ladder went that high because i was so far down on the ladder and she's so far up there i you, there wasn't even a connection uh, that that the ladder was that tall i love it that's yeah. that's the saying back home is you're so far behind you think you're first because you can't see anyone in front of you right yeah you think you're out because they're all right behind you laughing i had a school teacher yeah. who said you know don't think you're out in front sometimes you're just getting lapped yeah. 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 Yeah, for Anyhow, sure. so tangents that that's all the okay. all my podcast is nothing but a series <laughs> of tangents yeah just like my hunting success when i hunt is nothing but the culmination of thousands of mistakes yeah that somehow that mistake worked out. Well, and that's so. that's that's why I'm such a fan of what you guys are, are doing now. Is you're willing to show the mistakes because it's not. Yeah, we can we can be satiated for a while with all these success shots and all the kill shots. But what we really want to know is how to perfect our ability to harvest and our ability to appreciate the greater system. And and there you go. That's science. That's yeah. that is a science. Yeah. Well, if we were only going to show the good stuff, we wouldn't have enough content to keep people watching for more than about an hour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, we, I don't know, the fist pumping and grabbing antlers gets pretty dang boring after a while for me. <laughs> really? You don't want me to jump up and down and it's just throw my bow and scream uh, and yell and <laughs> go, into, go into some poetic kind of Ted Nugent Kind of. <laughs> don't get me started. On yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, you can go off on a poetic philosophical discussion if you want. It just okay. can't be exclusive. You know, All right. it's got to well, be some mix up in there. Yeah, I, that's not. That's a tangent. We shouldn't go down. Anyhow, you bet. You bet. Right. We're gonna. So, what we what we need to do is between now and when's the Wyoming draw coming out, Marcus? I think they said June twenty first, didn't they say? I could Google it. He's going to <laughs> So if we end up with Wyoming pronghorn tags, yeah. we should have you guys meet us well, there. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's, and don't limit us to there. I mean, there's a lot of country we haven't looked at. Or, and there's a lot of, I know we're going to be in your home state of Arizona yeah. in January. 
Yeah, and see, all we have to do is go south of the frost line for the ponds, where we'll find you know potentially some ducks and yeah. We so don't don't limit so, it to just right. if we go to Wyoming. Just right. tell us no, where you're going to be. So when we were in Arizona two years ago, our buddy Wade, he's like, "Why do you drive by, past all those ducks in that pond there?" I said, "I didn't see them." He said, "No, there's a big Mexican duck in there." I'm like, "Oh boy." I've never shot a Mexican duck before. So we park the rig. We sneak back there. I've got all, I'm the only guy who's got stamps. I'm like, Wade, why, why don't you have duck stamps? Well, I'm a quail hunter. Well, I'm an anything hunter. I'm an opportunist. So I sneak over the dike and boom, they're all widgeons. I'm like, man, I could have shot a widgeon up in Montana. I, I'm still appreciative for the chance to get to do it. But last year when we were there, Hank Shaw was with us and Hank, did shoot a Mexican duck. So now I've got this thing about hunting ducks in the Sonoran Desert of Arizona. Oh, man. Well, and then this, I've got to give a, a shit. My buddy, uh, a shout out to my buddy, Paul. Paul is another biologist, works for the Peregrine Fund, lifelong falconer. And if you've never had a falcon caught duck. You've really missed something because you know it's it's an odd occasion where you can have one of these smaller game animals that you've shot with a shotgun that's not busted up a little bit. Yeah. But when it's a falcon caught duck, yeah, it's like a a, a headshot, you know, white-tailed doe. Right? Really? I mean, it's clean, perfect. No. It's pristine. <laughs> you can take your time, and you can use the call fat in a duck to cook it in. And now I know this is a trend. We know, you know, right. everybody's doing these types right. of things to yeah. maximize the use of all the carcass mm -hmm. and all that. That's good. But who would think, you know, duck already is pungent. It's heavy duty. People mm -hmm. that don't like game meat don't, don't, they're like, oh, I don't do duck. It's like, right. you come with us and you eat duck and I will change your mind. Right. It's the same thing with every other game animal. It's how you care for it yeah. and cooling it down and all these things. Well, anyway, Paul Jurgens, he took this and he says, yeah, we got a couple of mallards tonight. I was like, right on. I'm always good with a mallard. And he says, and we got this. And he holds up this bag and it's duck fat. It's that interstitial fat, you yeah. know, that, that fat that shows you that life has been good yeah. for that animal. <laughs> and then he takes it in a hot cast iron skillet and he rolls it around in there and he gets this almost to smoking. And it has, apparently it has a little higher um, a burn, burn point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, it, you can actually get it really, really hot. And then you sear that duck breast in there and it, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Now, after it cools mm. off, then it really My smells. My mouth might be watering. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Leland, are you coming to Arizona with us? Yeah. Well, I mean, if I've got an invite, hell yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to set this. I mean, I've, I've heard this so many times now, and everybody who knows me knows that no. if I'm going somewhere, that the invite stands. Yeah. You just need to show up, and I'll put you to work, and we're right. going to have a good time. But I'm just going to set this to rest. Leland, will you go hunting with us this fall? Well, since you asked, no, but I'll come with you. <laughs> See, that shows you the true relationship we have here. And we're actually partners. Uh, you know, we're partnership here. You guys need to come to Arizona with us because we are hunting javelina. I wonder yeah. if a falcon could catch a, one of those little javelinas. Yeah, See, and I don't know the laws on that stuff. And I'm sure they're, well, so let's let's go back. In be fact, there's a, a dick dick coos deer I saw. I bet you a golden eagle could carry that thing away. I tried to have <laughs> That oh. thing is so smart. He's only a year and a half old little coos buck. Yeah. Uh, another humbling, ex my life is nothing but humbling experiences, but I, I wish I would have had a golden eagle. I would have said, go get that thing. He's outsmarted yeah. me four times a day. Well, it's like a martial eagle. Do you know about a martial eagle in no. Africa? Martial eagles eat impala. No way. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 
When you go and look at prey remains, that's one of the ways you study raptors in their nest. You look at the prey remains and dependent upon those prey remains, you can tell things about seasonality, changes by year, changes on a decadal scale. You can tell, okay, hey, this species didn't show up in these prey remains until here. What happened in the environment that changed that animal's diet? And so there's all these indicators there. But anyway, you go there and you look and here's a a femur of an impala below this nest. And I was over there doing a study with another one of our biologists just Munirvarani, and um, you know, I'm 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 the typical American, you know, the big pasty white guy with the binoculars, <laughs> and I pick up out of the top of this this uh, Toyota Land Cruiser, and I look at this bird, and that bird looked at me. That bird didn't look at me to find out when it needed to leave. That bird gave me the same look that a leopard gives you. Really? It gave me the look like. What is that? Can I eat it? <laughs> I could take you. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, Munir, do I need to like be really big now or do I need to get the heck back in the vehicle? Because this thing is looking and head bobbing at me like, you know, and, and we were, we were surveying their nests and, and he, and he says, uh, Chris, my friend, he says, those are the ones that eat impala. And I was wow. like, Wow. So yeah, so so what birds do naturally in nature and what falconers are allowed to do in nature, you know, we, gov- we govern ourselves yeah. just like we have with the North American model of wildlife management. So, yeah. Well, yeah. all right. You guys have an open invitation to come and join us in Arizona. Don't you, don't you think, Marcus? I, yeah. I mean, uh, well, because we already do, let's see, last year you and Kara did Havelina. Yep. We tried, every, two years in a row now, we've tried to do coos deer with, no yeah. result. Yeah, he's switching to a rifle this year. No. no. Oh, Marcus is yeah. going down in going November. I'm going I'm to try to get one with the rifle. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> nice. And then we always do quail. You bet. We Every time we've shot some ducks. Oh, rabbits. Those, those oh. antelope jackrabbits? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, wonder if it's, I wonder if it's yeah i wonder if that's legal to uh, we'll find out yeah. we'll find out we'll get with those. the guy i used to work for game and fish i'm still kind of the stepchild around there now. okay yeah. well hank shaw was with us and he cooked oh. and, and jim heffelfinger who yep. worked for yep. arizona game and yep. fish they yep. call him jackrabbit jim down there uh that antelope jackrabbit was unbelievable yeah. Can you imagine if all these were raptor caught? Well, that's what I was just thinking. Yeah. If Hank was there, John John O'Dell also was cooking for us. Yeah. If those guys had raptor yeah, no, killed, both those guys, yeah. Raptor killed uh, birds. Yeah. I bet you they'd be pretty excited about cooking them. Because yeah. you remember yeah. how proud Hank was when he shot that mallard perfectly that he didn't ruin yeah. the breast. Yeah. Yeah. None of them would have ruined. Well, not to mention like, <laughs> the rest of it, where you know when you hear a stooping falcon, you know they can fly up to two hundred miles an hour. <sighs> Yeah. Now you you hear that it sounds like you know a Nolan Ryan fastball, and then when it hits, it sounds like the catcher's mitt. It's really, <laughs> and it just yeah. Oh man! <laughs> Once you experience that, it, it kind of you know you could probably eat a dirt clot after that, and you'd be so uh, dazed by that whole experience that yeah, it's hard to separate it all. All right, we're doing Arizona because that's not dependent on a draw. Arizona yeah, is no, over absolutely. the counter. Yeah, it's you already live there. Yeah, so. no, I take my bow for a walk as well. Yeah. Okay, I, I have a bow that I've had for fifteen years. We and might I, just have to stay there for two weeks this year instead of a week, Marcus. Uh, I was there for two weeks. Oh, last. you were. That's right. I went down a week early. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I forgot. I'm game. 
Yeah. Cool. No, it's on. That's that's a that's a certainty. All right. Now, that sounds now like the fun. rest of it is just we can catch you on the road somewhere in between here and there and wherever, and and we'll we'll just yeah. we'll share uh, uh, calendars enough that we can get that done. Okay. Well, yeah. if there is a Randy Newberg sighting between August first and December fifteenth, my wife would like to know where. Yeah. Right <laughs> right so she can send me the divorce papers. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was telling her this morning or yesterday morning. When was it? What's today? Wednesday? I have yeah. no idea. Oh, it must have been Sunday morning. Is it Wednesday? Uh-huh. I, I was telling her, you know, I've been making all these jokes about you getting rid of me because of my travel schedule. And she kind of got this serious look like she's going to tell me something. And <laughs> Who, then who's she, joking? Right. And then she starts smiling like, don't worry. <laughs> I've been married 29 years. I'm not getting rid of you now. I'm like, can we get that in writing? Yeah, yeah I hear you. It's too, too painful to start over now, right? Right. <laughs> but when we went back home, she, she comes upstairs. I got this big whiteboard calendar. And she's standing there looking at it, at first with her arms on her hips. And she's not saying a word. Then her arms are crossed. crossed. I knew this. <laughs> and then I hear this... <sighs> And I look over and she's like, really? That's all I needed to hear. Like, honey, we're going fishing this weekend. We're going on vacation in July. We're going fishing again. I'm like, I got some serious pay it forward to go here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I've told her for our 30th wedding anniversary next February, I'll go anywhere. I don't care. I mean, I'm like a curmudgeon. You know, a beach is, to me, I'd rather get, nailed to the train tracks. Yeah. Unless it has you can fish, fish off, fish off, off a beach. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, if I could fish there, but like going to a big city for a vacation, yeah. oh, please, don't do that to yeah. me. Take your family. Take, take the neighbor. I don't care. Right. But for our 30th anniversary, I will do whatever. It's on record And I'm going to smile and I'm going to have a good time. Yeah. So there you heard it, honey. I'm not... I'm, I'm really trying my best here to be a good husband. So, see, I told you I have all kinds of tangents upon, on, on this podcast. I call it inoculating, but whatever you want to call it. <laughs> uh, but so we now we've got that locked in, folks. You've heard Chris and Leland say that we will be hawking in January in Arizona. So there you go. You you can't Sweet. you guys are on record now. You can't back out. Well, and that means that I've just encumbered other people. So Paul, Brian, uh, when you hear this, we're we're going hawking. All right, because <laughs> right. they have the birds. Thanks, and you guys. Vic. We'll take Vic. We'll we'll take okay. the pup. She'll yeah. be there too. Okay. So, yeah. 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 Bring. Yeah. Vic. Well, uh, Vic you probably met the... Paul's bird too, because he was at the rendezvous. Oh yeah, at you already the, met Paul. He, yeah. he was yeah. the yeah. Peregrine Fund. Yeah. That, yeah. Him and his Peregrine Fund were there. Is, at that the was dinner. here. Yeah. Yeah. The felt the the Peregrine was here. Man, that was cool looking. I mean, you look at that thing. It's like that's badass. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, it's it's business, man. It's like when you see that that rifle or that gun or that bow or that truck or that any of the things that we use you look at that and that thing has all of its tools together yeah, yeah. i mean i think of, you know some people are i get called the wolf hippie a lot because i'm you know i'm not one of those people who subscribe to the theory that wolves need to be removed off the north american continent and part of my respect for wolves comes from all right all they really have are teeth they don't have talons they don't have long claws like a grizzly bear they're gonna go and catch a 600 pound bull elk yep that's got big tines 
I mean, even a cow elk. Two tourists got beat up in Yellowstone here in the last week. Yeah. They from, from a cow elk. That's awesome. They deserved it. I, well, I could, <laughs> if that happened, chances are they deserved it. And not it. to be outdone, a couple days later, some other tourist decides they need a close-up of a bison. Yeah, perfect. And they got a really close-up, I hear. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. But anyhow, I, I think about trying to... <laughs> how skilled, how hungry, whatever, how brave you got to be to stick your head in there with nothing but teeth. Yeah. Out of yep. at an elk that's going to whoop your butt. And isn't that amazing? We pride ourselves on it be, being challenged with adverse conditions, <laughs> overcoming <laughs> it, using our family, using the tools we have, which may not be everything we need, and persevering. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what these critters do. That's part of this whole natural world that I... Hunting, either this, you could say, forces or allows me to go and immerse myself in this natural world. Like Marcus and I were up in Alaska last week. Those sea otters, how yeah. cool is that? Those things are just cool. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was most excited about half the time is watching all the eagles and sea otters and yeah. it's all the, it's that and then tons of bears everywhere. That was incredible. Yeah. But, but just, you look at any of those creatures, just like the raptors, and somehow they have found a way to make a living without high-powered rifles and great ammunition. And, I mean, I've got the finest clothes and optics you can get in the hunting world. Yeah. And I'm still not as good as they are. <laughs> yeah, humans are pretty crappy hunters when you yeah. think about it. Yeah. yeah. Like we, need a, we need a lot of help <laughs> yeah. to be yeah. successful. Really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a good way to put it, Marcus. Uh, so... Um, now that we've committed you that we're going hawking, I mean, I, but whoever has the goshawks, are you saying? Yeah. Well, there are people that hunt with goshawks. Yeah. Those two guys I mentioned don't have goshawks, but yeah. Uh, In the next three or four years, I really want to go back to my home stomping grounds of Northern Minnesota and hunt as they call them partridge grouse with a goshawk. Yeah. We just give a call I, I, out to your audience and see who's got a goshawk. Yeah, you know, exactly. I'm sure there's someone. Well, and who you listens. do have to be careful because uh, there was this this period of persecution of falconers. Once, once, as with almost any type of hunting, there has been a time when falconers were heavily, you know, uh, chastised for doing these dastardly things with you what? know falcons. I know, I, right? I'm, I must yeah. have missed that. Probably. Yeah, well, and and it's it's because it it's once we didn't have the need, and this pertains to all hunting today. Once we did no longer had the need to hunt for our own survival, which wasn't that damn long ago, right. I like to remind people, right. yeah. that that once we had that, you know, well, I can buy my meat down here. It's like, yeah, but I don't want to. So right. I'm using one of the oldest traditions and forms of hunting on records, of hawking or, or falconry. And you're saying that that's mean or that's, come on. Give me a break. Yeah. Anyway, so that caused falconers, I think, to 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 retract a little bit in society. They didn't they didn't want to stick their head up because it get chopped off. So really, yeah, well, yeah. But that, I mean, I know that, that's not a problem with your listeners, with but but I think it's important for people to understand where the rest of the world, the non-hunting world, the populace, the masses, how quickly they can turn, and that pertains exactly to almost every issue of conservation we have, where we have we feel threatened as hunters. Yeah. So yeah. Huh. Well, that gets into another, and I didn't have time to pick your brains on this down in Boise, but so I'm like 
maybe I'm a contrarian in everything I do. Okay. Everyone else is using mountain ops and wilderness athlete and all these, you know, multiple high dollar uh, supplements. And I'm Dairy Queen. Everyone else is... Still gets your calories, right? I mean, what else do you need? (laughs) Yeah. Everyone else is this or this and I'm that. Well, in my bullet selection world, I shoot a lot of non-lead bullets. And people know I'm a big fan of Nosler. And they make great bullets. I mean, the partition's been around since... 1940s. Yeah. 1948, I think, is when that bullet was designed still around still killing elk uh they make a great acubon and i don't know how many years ago it was they came out with their e-tip and i've been shooting their e-tip bullet a lot and people uh, there was the rifle we had up in alaska markets the 7 mmo8 and again i'm a contrarian all right we're bear hunting with the 7 mmo8 Everyone else is up there with their 338s or their whatever. And that's great. Um, but that 7mm 08 and my 308 and my 300 Win Mag love E-tip bullets. I mean, all those three bullet uh, styles I talked about shoot remarkably well in my rifles. But I just started using these E-tips. I think the first time I started using one of them was 2011 or 12. Was it down in Arizona? That's only a couple years after they came out. I think they came out in 2009 or something like that. And my first exposure to it was I drew a desert or or an Arizona strip tag in uh, 2007. And Arizona Game and Fish had a thing where you send in your coupon and Cabela's, I think, sent me two boxes boxes of lead-free ammo. That's right. Uh, That's my first exposure to them. To the whole lead-free issue and the and the, how that's affecting raptors and mm-hmm. scavengers and everything, and that unfortunately that strip tag still in my pocket. It's in my <laughs> desk drawer. Uh, but it got me thinking about this whole lead, no non-lead or whatever you polymer. I don't care. You, you hear people call it all kinds of things. For sure. the sake of this discussion, I'll say non-lead. Uh, that's what we say. Yeah, that's um, what we categorize so, it. Uh, but if people knew how many animals on the show we've shot with non-lead bullets, they're amazingly accurate, and their lethality is crazy. I mean, my son Matthew, we're in Montana. Uh, this group of elk are coming in, and he shoots this bull elk at 290-some yards with the 300 wind mag. And I'm thinking, you know, he might need a better angle while it, as I'm thinking that, he shoots. And it goes right on the point of the near shoulder. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was close to broadside, but not perfectly. Completely through that shoulder, through the, what do you call it? The scapula? Scapula. The, scapula. The, yeah. Shoulder blade. Yeah, yeah. On the other side. Yeah. And that bull just gives it up right there, man. <laughs> I mean, he does a face plant. Yeah. I'm like. Whoa, I guess that stuff isn't just good on targets. <laughs> <No. laughs> well, yeah. th- well, you think about all the bullet design, right? I mean, the partition was designed to solve the problem of weight loss, right? Yeah. For penetration. Mm-hmm. Acubon and all the bonding bullets, all that is trying to solve these same problems. Mm-hmm. You know, when Barnes designed, you know, their their X bullet, it was to solve that same problem. They just went a different path. Rather than still yeah. using lead, they make the entire bullet out of copper or a copper alloy. And 
it expands, but it holds 98 or 99% of its weight. Yeah. So you get all of the benefits of having an expanded bullet with the deep penetration. Right. And as technology has advanced from those early designs and, you know, now with the E-tip and all these other manufacturers, they've got really great bullets that give you the accuracy with fantastic terminal performance. Right. And it's really the pinnacle of technology, in my opinion. I mean, like you look, we use lead because it, Worked, and it was what we've always we've used. Been, we've been yeah. throwing lead at each other for thousands of years. <laughs> I mean, there were slingshots. Yeah, yeah exactly. Rome, this Roman, um, Roman, <laughs> lead uh, projectiles. Uh, yeah, yeah, that had yeah. like they cast them with insults on them so they could throw <laughs> them. <at each> other. <laughs> <laughs> we just got better at throwing stuff. You know, it, that's really what it comes down to. You've, 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 I have to say, Lulu, we've been doing this so long that 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 little summary you just gave right there. There's gonna be some listeners going, "Yeah, that guy's working for Barnes or Nosler or somebody." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If, they would, if they would just pay me i wouldn't be living in this tiny little apartment i could actually afford a nice place out that was well said man well said Uh, well well said anyhow my exposure to non-lead bullets has been with nosler and their e-tips and and they're just (laughs) randy hodges was on our show in 2014 i think it was right here (laughs) south of bozeman he had a mountain goat tag and at 290 some yards with a 7mm08 He's laying on the rock and he's waiting and he's waiting and that goat steps out. And what's going through my mind is I shot my mountain goat with the 270 using 150 grain partitions and uh, they're just tough. Yeah. You know, that goats are known for being really tough animals and he shoots and that goat flinches and it takes like three steps and it's going tumbling down the hill. And I'm like, wow. That was some serious performance from a a non-lead bullet. Well, then later, I shoot a big mule deer. Jerry Pritchard shoots a big mule deer. Uh, The biggest antelope I've ever shot in my life, I shot with E-tips. I mean, the the number of animals we've taken. So I I hear these stories about, oh, those those non-lead bullets, you know, they just, they're, they're, you can't depend on them to hold a group. I've I've heard so many stories and maybe I'm the outlier there. I'm somehow through coincidence, my experience has been different than all of the rest of the shooting world. You said it. You said it right there. You're basing your opinion based on your experience. Right. The disconnect between people's experience. I mean, not everybody has that opportunity to have the experiences at the rate that you do to be able to have a well-informed opinion. So what they'll do is they'll parrot what they've heard. And if you have a missed shot, how many times do you hear this? I don't care if you're talking about lead or non-lead. Oh, I put it right through the bread basket. (laughs) And it didn't. And you know what I say? I say, okay, I'm not that great of a hunter, but my freezer is full every year. I I have a few tags. I and Oh, I'll go to California and hunt hogs too. But anyway, um, I say, yeah, I'm going to call BS on that because I don't care. And this is my favorite line. I don't care if your bullet's made of frozen butter. You put it through the lungs. Don't touch a shoulder. Put it through the lungs, through and through shot with a pencil hole. It will die. Now, will it travel farther? Yes. Do we know about that? Yes. Because archery, when you zip through a bull elk and it goes through and through, is that animal not going to die? He's, he's, he's dead. He just doesn't know just it doesn't yet. doesn't know it yet. So what you have to do is, is and this is the key for all of the, the tools we use, you need to know the capabilities of you, 
your your equipment and and in the field and that application. So if I shoot a through and through with a solid copper at 400 yards, and I've done this on a on a cow elk, and it busted through the humerus, slipped between two ribs, zipped the top of the heart, which is not where I was aiming. Full disclosure, there I was going <laughs> for a high lung shot because that's a dang long shot for me. Right, and it went and broke a rib on the other side and exited the carcass at 419. With yeah. 180 grain solid copper bullet. Yeah. Now, so my first thought when I saw her drop down was, there you go, dummy. That's why you don't shoot beyond your capability because now you're going to be tracking that thing out here by yourself all night and you're going to be, that's why you don't do that. Well, she, she got up from her stumble and began to run. Well, the reason her leg looked like it was hit because I blew the humerus apart. Yeah. She piled up 40 yards from where I shot her. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh. And so when I hear that, they say, oh, I put it in the bread basket and it didn't kill it. I say, yeah, I got to call BS on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, to add, just to add to a couple of things, I mean, you're talking about people saying, oh, well, they don't group worth a damn. They may have tried one brand. Right. And, and one grain weight. And one grain weight <laughs> exactly. and didn't group yeah. worth a damn. But you don't buy a rifle and try one type of bullet and say right. my rifle doesn't isn't accurate. Or if you do, we'll buy <laughs> yeah. those rifles from no, you. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're willing to sell it cheap. I'll take it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to that point, Leland, I mean, you look at the serious guys out at the range, they're experimenting and tweaking with all different oh. bullet designs, grains, types. Seating. Uh, yeah. I mean, so yeah. To, Seating, to just, I mean, they're even playing with primers and, and you right. know, all that. I mean, if yeah. they're serious. They're looking at every variable within there. Yeah. What people have to understand is you switch the type of bullet you're using. You have to understand the differences in the bullets. A non-lead bullet will be slightly longer for the same weight. So you may mm -hmm. have to drop down some weight in order to get the accuracy. Yep. But because of that weight retention, you'll still get good penetration, right? Mm -hmm. If it's retaining 99% of its weight, it's going to push through. Yep. Um, so, you know, part of what I do in my program in Oregon is I set up days at the range, bring a bunch of ammo, people bring their rifles, and they can try as much as they want and see cool. which one shoots the best. Yeah. Because we're not asking people when we're talking about non-lead to just go in blind. We want people to be successful. We want hunters to continue to, to be able to hunt and be successful. We just, you know, if you're going to use a non-lead bullet, here's some ways to make it work. Yeah. Um, so uh -huh. I think that's a big piece people may miss. Also, go to the range and sight in before you go into the field, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've seen that on the Kaibab, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and you know what a coveted tag the Kaibab tag yeah. is. We were there last and, year. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I know. I watched the video just last week, and I saw it, and I know where – yeah, I, you know, exactly. I track birds down there. I know where you are. Okay. Yeah, I know the country. It's so – yeah, it was nice to see it. It's like, hey, that's my home. That's, yeah. that's it. We were using e-tips down there, but nobody popped a cap. Right. So yeah. we, right. we, we can't tell you how well the e-tips worked on the Kaibab yeah. Plateau yeah. because... Well, but, we have, but we have guys that, that will tell us, you contact them in the field, said, yep, yep, I got them. Got them, got them on Thursday on my way up. It's like, yeah. oh, do you, tell me you stopped somewhere off of the unit to sight it in. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I just assumed that. Don't, don't assume because you'll be one of those who then says, I tried them. They don't work. Yeah. 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 yeah Which I think a lot of the early folks who have done a switched over and requested to be switched over. That's where a lot of that information comes from. Where really? Well, 93% of Arizona hunters surveyed after that program you were talking about was, was uh, initiated. 93% of Arizona hunters on the Kaibab Plateau said that the non-lead ammunition, those who tried it, said it shot, shot just as well or better than their lead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I, mm. I I don't know. Maybe I'm a one man band trying. I'm. It's my missionary zeal of trying to get people 
to, and, and I don't care if it comes to this topic or others, I get tired of the bar stool rumors. That, yeah. And it seems yeah. like maybe every activity has its level of, maybe golf has their own bar stool rumors that need to be Oh, sure. Well, this ball is better than that ball. Right? Yeah. Oh, my, my club will hit it 40 yards further than yours. I mean, yeah. But just, I played golf once or twice. It's yeah. all bull. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've kicked it once or twice. Yeah. But yeah. my point is, I, I I tire of people attaching to these uh, urban myths, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. It's like go out and experiment for yourself. And yeah. I, I was lucky that Arizona kind of. And it was strictly voluntary. I mean, Arizona didn't say you had to. And that's what we're pushing. Yeah. That's we are 100% voluntary. Yeah. Information, education, and incentivization. And yeah. and even in this discussion here, we we went right into the to the details of of shooting non-lead. But uh, you know, we haven't even touched on you know why why should I care? Yeah. And so that's that's we'll, we'll get to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. I get <laughs> I get excited. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it was cool that Arizona made it voluntary. There was a pamphlet in there that explained what their research was showing yep. about how lead was uh, affecting certain birds of prey, raptors, and, and scavengers. I think mostly, if I, this is, what, 11 years ago, so I'm, I'm old, so my memory doesn't serve me that well. But I thought there they were talking about it mostly in terms of condors. Yeah, so the fragmentation study we did, we started... Um, in 2003 is when we started shooting uh, all different types of ammunition, understanding hunting operate, or hunting situations. Shooting, actually we were up in Sheridan, Wyoming at a board member's ranch and they had enough whitetails and you can buy the Dauphin permits and said, yeah. let's do a study. Let's, we, we saw a peak of exposure that coincided with the hunting season and it was annual. When, when you say a peak, tell me what you mean by a peak, peak of exposure. Of ex yeah, I'll explain that. Okay. So, so we're monitoring blood lead levels. We had one of the condors drop dead and of course, when we track condors on an individual basis, and that's the importance. There, there's so few of them, you, so can few, you, can, you can actually do that. You can actually do that. And so okay. people get tied up, and I'm sure that there are some of your listeners, that the moment you hear condors, they say, oh, that's what this is about. Okay, the importance no. of the condor work is that we studied an entire population of scavengers on an individual basis. Not on a population-wide basis, well, but an in, both, individual, both individual, which gives population. you population. Okay. Now, you think about it. In wildlife management and wildlife research, there's hardly ever an opportunity you have to do that. So when, when in science you talk about the, the big N equals and the little N, N stands for population, you very rarely use the large capital N because that is indicative of the entire population, right? Okay. Sorry, that was just for our yeah. wildlife hacks. <laughs> well, they you wildlife guys understand that. See, that was news to me as an accountant. Yeah. The big N stood for Newberg. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened was is, is early on, we started reintroducing condors there. And that's, I used to work for Game and fish right. at mm -hmm. on the condor program and then later with the peregrine fund and so we started releasing condors in 1996 it wasn't until those condors began to basically take the shape of what they are today that is you know surviving wild free-flying condors yeah. some would mm -hmm. argue of wild but anyway we'll, we'll get to that maybe had a bird drop dead down the grand canyon in the summer Captured the bird because we knew, I mean, we, we recovered the carcass because we knew that it had died and found out that it died of lead poisoning. Hmm. And my first thing was, okay, well, this was said to have happened in the early years in California and was said to have been one of the causes for their recent decline. And I thought, okay, let's make sure that we're not just jumping down this 
this path because of what our expectations are. Let's look at this rationally, like like you're talking about earlier. Well, the radiograph, the X-ray showed that that bird had ingested some type of meat carrion in the field that had number seven shot in it. Number and I seven say, bird shot. Bird shot. And, okay. and so, so this is going to be a bit confusing, but I'm going to try to make the leap very quickly here because bird shot is an anomaly. Rarely do they eat things. Do these, do this, do these particular scavengers, condors, eat small carcasses? Usually it's large game. Okay. And so it's more of an anomaly to see bird shot. But when I saw that, I said, oh, that's number seven bird shot. And the pathologist looking at it says, what do you mean? I was like, well, I reloaded as a kid. I mean, I, I've chunked through a lot of shells on that mech uh, progressive reloader. I mean, the, the manual reloader. I know what number sevens look like, and that's number seven birdshot. So in the x-ray scan, you can in, see the shot oh, yeah, in, yeah. in their system. Yeah, and so, okay. so uh, later... to clear that up, the reason you can see it is lead will actually reflect the x-ray back. So any metal, you can see really yeah, cleanly so bone, on It's all based on density. On x-ray. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I it's all based that. on density. Yeah. So when you look at an x-ray of a broken bone, the reason right. the bone resonates is because of its density. Yeah. Well, you can imagine then for lead and its density, it lights up like like the North yeah. Star. I mean, it's bright. There's so no doubt that it's... Lead doesn't just pass through them when they eat it. Well, it does. It does. Oh, okay. But... but they, as soon as lead in, and this is in any system, whether it's a mammal or an avian species, when lead hits our system and goes into an acidic environment, it begins to break down and makes a lead salt. That lead salt can then be assimilated into the body, and that's where the damage begins. So when, when my dad and his brother used to crack jokes about lead paint, you know, that back in the yeah. 60s and mm-hmm. 70s, we were getting rid of lead paint. My dad would be like, well... Great. Lead, lead's been in this world forever. It ain't gonna hurt anybody. Hey, I've heard that contemporarily. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard just recently in the past years. I've heard, hey, lead's on the periodic table. How can it be danger? I was like, well, do you know about those other things? Those other heavy metals? <laughs> so, so is uranium. But but anyway, so so back to to fast tracking forward. So we thought, okay, even though this may have been an anomalous exposure, something that's not going to happen on an annual basis, we need to monitor. So every time we trapped a condor, whether it was to replace a transmitter, to put new number tags on it, because we wanted to monitor them to that degree, we would take a blood sample. And when we took those blood samples, we would show that seasonally, beginning in 2002, and that's when the condors keyed in on the kaibab. Okay. Beginning in 2002, the condors were on the kaibab for the hunting season. As if the dinner bell had been rung. Oh, really? They yeah. knew in October. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they'll sit, I mean, and people say, oh, yeah, we see them around our camps. Well, that's because they're attracted to activities. When there's increased activity on the Kaibab, it means the dinner bell has been rung. There is food there. Huh. And when you look at ravens, you look at ravens in campsites, and condors are visual scavengers, so they look for the ravens to find food. Huh. Yeah. The important part of that story is that we started monitoring and then it wasn't until a couple of years later in 2002 that we saw annual peaks of lead levels. And when I say peaks of lead levels, I'm talking about lead levels that would have your general practitioner ask you to go to the hospital. I mean, really? high, high, high levels of lead in these 20-pound scavenging birds, right? Huh. And so we thought, wow, there seems to be some, something significant to the fall and the hunting season and condors. And we would... We had GPS transmitters on some of these birds. Yeah. So we'd find, hey, this bird's been in this area for two days. We got to get out there. We get out there, and being a hunter myself, we get out there, and I find a greasy spot in the pine needles <laughs> and a couple of happy condors sitting up around the trees <laughs> with a big fat crop. And I'd be like, oh, 
they ate that entire flipping gut pile in addition to all the other scavengers. Yeah. But, you know, they're fat and happy. That's the condor's MO. They go in there and, and gulp it up, store it in this big crop, go sit somewhere and digest for a couple of days and watch the world go by. Yeah. They're damn good at it. Yeah. And I thought, okay, so if this is tied to the gut piles, it can't be. It must be wounding loss. And yeah. we know from other studies around the, around the states that there's about 11% wounding loss. And we thought, okay, but th- we're seeing 80% of the population showing really, really high toxic levels of lead. It must be something else. Yeah. So we thought maybe it's in the ground. Maybe it's in the water. So we began looking at fish in the area that may have been consumed by scavengers, water, um, everything. And the lead that was found there did not match the isotopic makeup of the lead in the condors. The lead in the condors was recycled lead, which would, which would be something. Yeah. And, and this is to be fair and to be a true scientist, you say, okay, what kind of things that are, are we introducing into the landscape that might be recycled lead? And so we hear you know, batteries. All right. Well, we don't see a significant increase of condors eating batteries. So um, (laughs) (laughs) I even heard one time, one of the hunters who really didn't want to hear this when I worked for Game and Fish, he goes, "Ah, I just don't buy it. It could be, you know, what about wine wrappers? And I said, I don't know where you come from, (laughs) but the hunters that I go hunting with, and and Uh, maybe uh, we have to exclude somebody like Hank uh, Shaw, who has a taste for this and a knowledge, you know, but they're not using handy fine wine like that. You know, we're we're talking the, the wine can that says beer on the side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Beer, yeah. exactly. And, and so we said, okay, but it's happening during deer season. So that led to the question of how many fragments could there possibly be in a single shot deer? One deer shot once through and through, how many fragments could there be? We looked to the research and the, the literature and we didn't find anything. Nothing that's not we've, been studied? No, the only oh. place we found that there was any indication of it was from wartime. And so from the advent of the x-ray and the ability to use it, you know, we think of being shot and we're informed by what we see. And we think, oh, this is like John Wayne. You know, when they had him bite the stick and take a shot of whiskey, yeah. he'd been shot in the arm. They dug in with forceps, came out and blink into the metal pan goes the bullet. Right. Turns out it doesn't work that way. Uh, when that bullet impacts because it's made of lead and because bullets weren't always as good as they are today and had these fine copper jacketings and they're bonded and things right. like that. When that bullet, as technologies improve, they go faster and faster, that lead breaks down upon impact. So we needed to quantify rates of fragmentation for standard rifle hunting ammunition for deer to see if we could figure out this mystery. So we shot 34 deer. 100% of the deer we shot... We x-rayed, and 100% of the deer we shot with lead contained fragments to varying degrees depending on bullet comp- composition. Huh. And we held these things up in the x-ray with an arrow shaft through the wound channel so that we could x-ray, you know, in perfect perpendicular, um, or sorry, in line with the path of the yeah. bullet so we could see how far the fragments went because the snowstorm effect had been identified in wartime for people who were shot and they'd x-ray and they would pull out the largest mass of the bullet, but the rest would be this snowstorm. It looks like a galaxy of stars. Huh. And of again, just small, of minute, just minute light. fragments. And mind you, those are the only ones that you can pick up with an x-ray. There are other smaller ones there. And if you know about surface area, you know that the more the greater danger is in the smaller fragments, especially if you're talking about breaking it down in a, in a critter's stomach. Yeah. So um, the thing that blew us off the, uh, off the water was not that every deer we shot had lead in it because we put it there. Yeah. <laughs> but it was that the gut pile, some gut piles contain 450 fragments. 
So you 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 brought the gut piles in and actually yeah, sorry, those also? Sorry. Yeah, I should have. Uh, so we shot the deer. We wrapped them up in a in a uh, uh, rolled them onto a tarp, and then took them directly to a veterinarian's office and we X-rayed them. We did whole. the whole thing whole. Without then we out. eviscerated okay. them and we gutted them just like you would in the field. Right. But we gutted them. We wanted to catch all the blood, gore, and organs yeah. into, and we used supplement tubs. Yeah. See my ranching background there. Yeah. We use these supplement tubs. <laughs> and so we had the entire gut pile in these supplement tubs. And then we x-rayed that. And so we were able to quantify the fragments that were left in the carcass after it was cleaned all the way down to the packaged meat. And wow. we did it all in two studies for over... Over 64 deer in total. So we took these preliminary data back to um, Arizona Game and Fish and sat down with them and said, and understanding the sensitivity to this because right. we had a condor, you know, it's an endangered yeah. species. There's going to, this is going to be an S show, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're going to go and talk to them and say, here's what we found. And we think we figured out why we have this, this high peak of exposure each year during the deer season. Yeah. And we told them the process that we had gone through and they were like, okay, let's hear it. You know, give us the results. We showed them these x-rays and, they say it, a picture speaks a thousand words. You see those x-rays and those fragments, you go, oh my Lord, I had no idea. Yeah. And then some people say, well, I don't shoot them in the guts. It's like, okay, let's, let's be clear. We go through the whole thing. There's above the diaphragm and below the diaphragm. And no, we're not talking about just the intestines and the stomach and the paunch. Right. We're talking about the target area. Right, the lungs. All the internal part. organs that we leave behind. That we leave behind. So basically it comes down to, to fast track forward, it comes down to any animal you shoot with a lead-based bullet whose remains you intend to leave in the landscape pose a potential risk to wildlife who consume it. Makes sense. So <clears throat> whether it's the gut pile, whether we do the gutless method, like when we leave the whole frame yep. of the, you yep. know, maybe you'll leave the ribs and the, and the spine and the bones there. It's if you leave it in the field, yep. something's going to eat it. Something's <laughs> going to eat it. doesn't go to waste in the field. But the interesting thing is the condor was the entry point for this for oh, a lot yeah. of folks, right? Yeah. So this is the key point for us is the condor was so closely studied, they were able to get to this information fairly easily, which is much more difficult to do with these much larger populations of eagles and other raptors. Okay. But the researchers who were looking at eagles and other things were seeing that and said, oh, it's happening from all this scavenging. Well, we see the birds that we study scavenge. What could what it be happening to them yeah. as well? And so then you start looking at that deeper and you're seeing exposure happening in bald eagles and golden eagles and even down into hawks and, and really anything that is willing to scavenge has that risk of exposure. Huh. And see that, that, that then kind of paralyzes you for a while as a biologist, as a hunter, as a human, uh, you go, Ooh, oh, wait. So, how come it's not affecting other species? Mm -hmm. Why don't we see declines in these other species? Well, th the first answer is the numbers game. And the second answer is, have you looked? Right. And so what Leland's saying is now they're looking and they're saying, oh my gosh, you know, there's these, these hawks that are feeding on the remains of ground squirrels being shot. And we as hunters say, well, yeah, we're feeding the hawks and eagles. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, we're also feeding them a little bit of lead. And even though it hasn't been quantified at a population limiting level like it has for condors, it's probably worthy of our extra consideration here. So you're saying, like in Montana, let's face it, the, a lot of ranchers invite people out 
oh, yeah. to thin out the prairie dogs. Hey, I, I grew up doing it in California. Yeah. yeah. And I got a buddy of mine coming over here next week to do it. Yeah. So, and a lot of my buddies are, I ask him, what are you doing? Oh, we're out making ha- for happy hawks is what yeah. he calls it. But, hey. maybe, but maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> maybe some hawks that glow in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> maybe some, I tell you, well, and so hmm. I think it's a, this is a good time to just insert a little bit there with, with what's the big deal? What is a little lead going to do to you? We've eaten lead all of our lives. It didn't kill us. It probably hasn't helped us, but okay. What, what's a little lead? Well, lead in, in both avian and mammalian species is stored in the body as if it were calcium. And calcium is a major neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. So where it starts to break down is these neurological effects. And so let me tell you exactly what it does to a raptor if the dose of lead is high enough or frequent enough over a period of time. And you've seen this in the condor studies Abs- and other absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. Okay. And, and multiple just, other, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. And we're just, we're just beginning to understand the other implications. When you see um, a hawk collide with a power line mm-hmm. and you think, man... That bird makes its living off of its visual acuity and its ability to navigate airspace yeah. to chase game. Why do they sometimes hit a wire? Is that just nature's way? But, or is there something impairing that animal's ability? When you start looking at the effects of lead and even the known effects of lead in humans and what you, the visual acuity, dexterity, all these things, digestion, that's, how it, that's what it attacks in some of the birds. They just quit digesting food because their their system is paralyzed by the lead that's stored in places where calcium should be. Huh. And 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 then you think of, wow, what about the all the other mortality factors? Are they contributed to by these birds that are just a little sick? Mm-hmm. And it's a terrible way to die. And I don't say that because I know how it is to be a a bird of prey. But if you think about you're starving to death while eating, and losing your form and function and ability to do anything and getting so sick that you go and hole up somewhere and hope to outlast this malady and mm. not be predated. Yeah. And you don't come back. Huh. Now, how many times does that happen? We don't know. We, right. we, we, you don't find animals that are sick that go off to die. Um, so, uh, but we should roll back a little bit because when we talk about the testing itself, you have to understand what we're capable of doing. So we can test blood, which is a snapshot of exposure, exactly. of recent exposure. It lets us know, okay, there's been lead exposure that's happened in the last two weeks or so. And we don't know where in that two weeks. It could still be climbing. It could be declining now. So but we it, know it's it, happening. It will be out of their blood system within some period of time. Right. But so maybe not from out there, of their system. But not out of their system it, completely. Because there are different compartments of storage is what Leland's right. Going into okay. so lead is where it first goes into uh, into blood and then into vascularized tissues, then into organs, then into bone and brain. The half life of lead in bone and brain is is suspected to be like it is in humans, like twenty to forty years. Mm. The half life of lead in blood is only about seventeen days for these raptors. Oh, okay. So that's so where you're dropping getting, yeah, down, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it yeah. drops down pretty quickly once they hit the limit of that exposure. Once they hit the peak, mm-hmm. but. When you capture the bird, you cut, like, capture a live bird and you take some blood and let it go. You don't know where in that exposure they are. If or they're with still a climbing, bird, where they got it. Or where they got it. You know, there's a lot of, lot of challenges that go, but we do know that those exposures tend to be increasing during the hunting season. We much, have much higher levels of exposure and more birds exposed. With every study we with see. With every study yeah. that's been done. Huh. And then 
it has impacts, sublethal impacts. You know, it's not just death is the problem, right? right? It, let, yeah, if you're feeling poorly during right. breeding season, uh, it's not going to yeah. bode well for you expressing your genes in the next generation. No, that's for sure. <laughs> so there's yeah. been some cool recent studies that have actually looked at movement and flight and golden eagles in Europe with lead exposure and at yeah. very low levels of exposure. It actually changes how they're moving across the landscape, which what is the overall impact of that? We don't know yet. But yeah. now we show that that exposure is actually changing behavior, and that's also concerning. And of so, course, we know that in, in humans, but right. we, we are taught in science, you know, you can't use these anthropogenic terms. You can't put human, you know, values and, and, and explanations into birds. But, but hey, lead is, lead is lead. And so when we get pretty deep into some of these conversations about the science on lead, you can kind of lose yourself and it's a little overwhelming. And I think that's another reason some people just choose to turn off and say, right. I don't buy it. Yeah. Well, but, we've been using lead since forever. So we haven't seen the problem until now. What's the problem right. now? Yeah. Well, we weren't looking. Yeah. <laughs> We've changed the types of firearms that we're using and the ability technologies, or technologies yeah. that to be able to fire that bullet faster and have it expand faster. Um, and all of that combines to increase rates of fragmentation. And I think I fragmentation, although accurate, really to me, we, you have to describe it as what it is. The bullet expands and it's not just blowing apart. It's stripping small pieces of lead off the front of the bullet as it goes through the tissue. And those right spread out as it's going through. And we've known that we have weight loss for a really long time. It's only that it was recently actually studied and published in the peer-reviewed literature. There's a reason we have all these bullet types because we knew about weight loss and fragmentation. Yeah. We just didn't consider where does that actually end up yeah. and what's the end result of that. Because yeah. we're always so concerned for good reason, with the effectiveness of the bullet itself. Right? Yeah, you want when to we mainly hit, take that yeah, animal. We, we right? hit, yeah. hit and kill that animal right away. And that's the goal of the bullet. Now, with this new information for me, it's okay. The goal of the bullet for me is also making sure I don't have any other unintended consequences. Right. One shot, um, one kill. One shot, one kill. For yeah. real. Yeah. Um, not just the animal I'm looking at until I leave the field. Huh. Well, when we were down in that Kaibab, remember, Marcus, there are all those signs there about turn your gut pile in and you huh. get entered in a drawing or something? Oh, yeah. They took the non-lead stuff pretty seriously down there. We yeah. saw a couple different groups of people driving around, talking, asking yeah, questions. Are, yeah, that's yeah. our Game and Fish department and the interns. And my daughter was one of those interns. That, oh, really? Yeah. Not this one. The, the uh, okay. So yeah. the, the idea there, and the reason that I think Arizona was so effective converting me, if you want to call it that, is it, it wasn't, uh, we're going to legislate this, we're going to require this, we're going to mandate this. It was all just information and giving me some facts of, well, heck, you know, if, if there is some indicator that maybe it's having an effect, what the heck? I, I want, you know, if I truly am a hunter who claims to be a conservationist, I want to think about, like you just said, Leland, not just the species I'm taking that day, but... Yeah, going on, and they made it pretty clear that it was, you know, leaving gut piles, leaving carcasses. There at that time, and that was eleven years ago. They were having some uh, indicators that that was contributing. The indicators: fifty-five percent of the diagnosed deaths. That is where a bird can be collected, where a condor can be collected, uh -huh. and identified as to what causes death. Fifty-five percent are caused by lead poisoning. Really. 
Wow. And again, I that, caution. That's not 55% of every condor has lead poisoning. No, no, it's that's 55% of the, of the condors that die and, that are necropsied, which yeah. is an autopsy for wildlife. 55% of those die of lead poisoning. The second leading cause of death is less than half that rate and it's predation so it's what you it's it's a right. good thing it's one that that we say okay that you should expect that right i think we've lost 17 birds to predation mm. compared to yeah 55 percent. i think it's up to 37 condors now uh from from lead, lead poisoning poison. yeah huh. yeah and again so, i caution people don't run off and say well that's just condors it's an indication of right. potential impact for every other scavenger out there. Some scavengers won't be as affected as, as the condor. Right. But at the other studies, as Leland very appropriately pointed out, are showing that every other place you have a hypothesis and say, I wonder if there's lead poisoning in this species because they consume the remains of shot animals in the field. And on, in nearly every case I can think of, the answer was yes. Yeah. And so the reasonable part, and this is what you brought up about, they were saying, bring in your gut pile. I pr I'm so proud that in our, our work with Game and Fish together in a partnership, we came up with this plan that, okay, what are the other ways people can help? Because one of the last things some hunters want to do when they finally get drawn for that tag is change the type of bullet they're confident in. Right. It's like changing. It's like your wife saying, hey, we're going to give you some new walleye lures. Don't use the things you've always used. <laughs> and Ooh, you're gonna, ain't no, no, no way. Way. So, so it's the same thing. And so what you want to say is, what are the other ways we can eliminate this potential exposure? And we said, well, it's a nasty proposition, but hey, let's ask them to collect their gut piles. Yeah. And when I tell people that, or when they hear that, they laugh and say, who does that? Well, let me tell you who does that. When the Peregrine Fund or other donors contribute to this pool of prizes and we say you could win a gift card for Cabela's for $500. I'll tell you who brings them in. A lot of people. <laughs> yeah. In Utah and Utah has a similar voluntary lead reduction program Yeah, and uh, we purchase an ATV and five rifles a year. Oh, really? The Peregrine Fund purchases that and gives that to them and say, hey, we're we're putting our money where our mouth is and we're a nonprofit. You know, we're working yeah. to, to fund ourselves. We're not, this isn't a government project here. And we say, we'll we'll put our we'll put our, our money where our mouth is. Here's an ATV, brand new Honda Rancher, 420, four by four every year, and five rifles. And say and for we, people who bring their gut pile. They bring in a gut pile or just show that they're using non-lead ammunition, give us a proof of purchase. And that's what th those two little programs and what Leland's done in Oregon and some of the, the other outreach programs in other states, that's what led to us saying, we need to do this on a larger scale. Yeah, People need to know that they can help contribute to conservation by doing something as simple as either using a non-lead bullet and leaving the remains of carcasses in the field or using their their other bullets, their lead bullets, and removing the carcasses from the field. I mean, the best case scenario for wildlife is they still have grown to utilize that food source. Right. So it'd be best if they could just continue to eat that. That carcass or gut pile. Yeah, I mean, the other piece is like in Oregon, we don't have check stations. So okay. people don't have a place they could bring gut piles oh, to okay. check them in. So I can't do a program like that. But what I've done and I'm working on right now is building an incentive program similar to what was done in Arizona, where if they can prove they've used it, then we... Uh, enter them into that drawing for some good prizes. Uh -huh. And on the other side, we really want to support new hunters. So part of what we're doing is also as hunters go through hunter ed 
if they're able to complete a small course that also highlights some of the information about non-lead ammunition and the benefits of choosing it, um, they will uh, can get a gift card or a discount coupon to actually purchase non-lead as the ammunition they first try huh. so that they can experience that success that you've seen. Yeah. Um, because, you know, we all hunt. We all want to see hunting continue. We firmly believe that hunting is a key part of North well, American that, model of wildlife conservation. And the two tenets funding. of our partnership. Yeah. To conserve our conservation, wildlife conservation and hunting heritage. It says yeah. it in the only document we have thus far that defines what this partnership is. It says just yeah. that. That's what we're about. We want to maintain hunter's position as leaders in conservation. We want to maintain our participation. But we also want to make sure that we are actually leading in conservation. And as new information comes out that shows that there's something we can choose that will have a positive impact on other wildlife and also allow us to tell that story to non-hunters, yeah. we think this is a really important piece of all that. Yeah. Uh, we well, do. A, we do supporting a... that path for new folks is, for me, one of my, my key elements. You know, people who don't haven't bought in, aren't tied in yet to, well, I've been using this bullet for 30 years. I'm really hesitant to switch. Okay, you haven't been using a bullet yet. Why don't you try this one, see how well it works for you. Yeah. And because of that experience you've seen, I actually talked with folks who have started their kids hunting with a non-lead bullet and said, you know, the reason we did that is it provides us a bigger shot area because we don't have to worry about bullet fragmentation on a shoulder bone yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Because they can use that entire area as their target, get that bullet in there and still get penetration to those vital organs, even with a, sometimes a lighter caliber, which works really well for the young yeah, kids. That's a, that's a, yeah. that's a because you get point, all yeah. that combined, all that performance, get them started down the path and also be supporting these other species out there. Huh. Well, I, I hate to, no, I don't hate to, I'm, I'm happy to. <laughs> talk about and i don't know what the i guess voluntary do you call it compliance when it's voluntary participation participation, participation. Okay. partnerships okay yeah. in arizona do they have any numbers that say how many hunters are yeah, voluntarily participating for the last 11 years yeah 87 percent average really yes wow that's, that's, a, that's way beyond what I would have no. expected. And isn't it sad that that is not what is leading the ticker tape on the news station, you know, that look what hunters are doing for conservation. <laughs> right. Instead, what dominates is the ban in California is threatening our rights. Yeah. Well, that was a raw deal in the way that came about. And that's what we're trying to make sure people are aware of to inoculate for. Yeah. The best way to not be told what to do is to take the bull by the horns, and that's what we're doing in these voluntary outreach programs. Because huh. right now, California, when is it? Starting in 19? July 1, 2019. 2019, yeah. I mean, they, they're phasing it in, so right now, <clears throat> I, I just read it, and I'm going to forget, but they've, they've gone all state lands, and I think quite a bit of the bird hunting and everything, and I think all big game um, in will be the final phase in in 2019, so all hunting. So uh, yeah. it's kind of the California way, I guess, that it's it's way easier to just tell people what to do and force them to do it than to yeah. work harder and, and have a voluntary. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah, no, like it's Arizona a, has. You know, the, the groups, the, the so-called conservation groups, and yeah, I guess I went ahead and opened that can of worms. The so-called conservation groups who do their conservation through threats of litigation and beating they're, up the legislators, they, they go to the, where the low-hanging fruit is, right. and, and that's California. And, and I, I don't, I'm, I'm from California, and, and I, I hate it. And I'm a conservation scientist, and I'm a hunter. And 
th- that's that's an insult to me. Yeah. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to think. Give me information so that I can think for myself and make a more informed decision and coax me along to hopefully make a really good decision for conservation right. and for the future of hunting. Because the other masses that Leland brought up a little, little bit ago that um, we don't just work on this North American non-led partnership to talk to hunters and to agencies and to sports groups. And I hate sports groups. I said that the other day. This is not a sport, damn it. This is my tradition. This is my heritage. It's not a sport. Yeah. I played football. That was a sport. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we don't just spend our time talking to those people. Yes, those are the people who can solve the problem by choosing to use non-lead or remove the remains of shot animals. But we spend an awful lot of time talking to the non-hunting sector. And mm-hmm. you should see the faces of the Audubon crowds when I'm speaking to them when I talk mostly about hunting and the conservation ethic we as hunters have. Yeah. And they look at me like, are you kidding me? You know, how can you love an animal and shoot it? And I said, well, let me tell you. Do you know about your founding fathers of of ornithology? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about about Audubon. Did you know? (laughs) Have you heard the name George Grinnell? Have you heard, you know, yeah. How about, anyway. So we spend an awful lot of our time trying to educate them as well and say, look, hunters are the only ones that can solve this problem. So it would behoove you to... Get off your high horse for a moment and not chastise hunters and engage and understand why they do this, what is not only our tradition and heritage, but it's a legal activity. Yeah. And find out if there's some way you can join to help to, to work with them to solve this problem because you too care about the environment. You too care about these raptors. Um, so you don't hunt. That's okay. Right. You don't have to be enemies. But, you know, in a world as as, as such that we live in today where there aren't a lot of big enemies, right? I mean, things are pretty damn good. So we'll create our own and we'll fight amongst ourselves until we implode. Uh, We can't let that happen. Yeah, so it's interesting. I work for a zoo, which is weird. Um, (laughs) Well, you just did it too. I think we're both going to be looking yeah, for jobs. After yeah, this. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't want any. If, if either of you get fired because of this conversation, I'm not here to bail you out. <laughs> no, I would be but here. I know where you work. Okay. <laughs> uh, I know how to pack stuff. I'm good at that. Oh, really? uh, oh anyway. well, all right. <laughs> Leland's already a notch ahead here. He, he has metabolism, though. He'll eat more. Yeah, that's true. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, I can right, carry yeah. a lot. And, right. and, uh, well, we'll consider you equal then. But, you know, the interesting thing for me is, you know, I do all these events where I go and talk to the hunters because, again, it's their choice that really makes a difference. So mm-hmm. they're yeah. the key partner for me. And, you know, there are people. Yeah. So that's who we like to go talk to. I mean, I like talking to other folks as well, but I go and do events at the zoo. Zoos are interesting in that that's a place people who have no connection to wildlife can go and feel connected and start that connection. Wow. You know, you think about this. different than us. Someone who's grown up in the middle of LA goes to the zoo and they go, oh, wild animals are cool. We don't see wild animals. We see pigeons and, you know, things like that in the middle of a city. They see wild animals, but you can see those on the news. Right. Yeah. Yeah, They look up, they watch them on BBC. (laughs) But I go to these and I have a booth showing, okay, well, lead ammunition and some impacts on wildlife. But what I spend my time talking with the public about at zoo events is hunting and conservation. I had a little girl come up to me last summer. They do these events, Twilight Tuesday, they call them, where people can come in kind of late in the evening and there's some music and stuff and there's just a bunch of booths around. And she counts, well, isn't hunting bad? Like, oh, why is hunting bad? Well, they kill animals. Okay, well, do you eat meat? Yeah, I, I really like chicken and all that. 
okay, great. Well, you realize you also kill animals. Hunters own the killing of the animal. They also pay to manage and conserve species. Yeah. By the end of this conversation, it's just a 10 year old girl or something. She's, oh, okay, I mean, I, this makes more sense. You know, I understand it now, but she'd never even been exposed to it. Right. And that's a challenge we have as hunters. And I think one of the reasons why this is so important, this, you know, choosing non-lead and being engaged on this subject, because it allows us to open up that conversation with the public who we rely on for support. Yeah. You know, we're, 10, 13% of the overall population. If we're lucky. Nationwide. Yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> it's change, depends where you're at. Yeah, yeah. it's not increasing. Um, and we need that support. And we need to be able to show hunting's benefits for wildlife, for conservation. We've got lots of things in our history to share. This is one we could do that has current application. Yeah. Uh, and is really important for me. Like I said before, bringing those young folks on, but even people who aren't planning on hunting, just making sure they understand. Yeah. Um, well, and we've got it? some groups of non-hunters that are now um, working on campaigns to raise funds to buy ammunition for hunters to say, we, we don't hunt, but we'd sure like you to try this for this reason. Really? And we want to do it so bad, we're going we're gonna to pay for the ammunition. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. It's that's amazing the difference in response you get from a campaign like that to what happened in California. I worked yeah. in California. Um, we were talking before we started about my, my past, you know, shooting invasive animals and, and dealing with all that. And I was down there right after that passage of that, of that initial law in 2007. 2007, yeah. went into effect 2008. I started that outreach program in 2010, was there for a couple of years. It was brutal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people were- They were pissed. Pissed. Yeah. And for good reason. Yeah. I mean, the information had come out a year or two ago. They hadn't even seen it by the time the law was passed. Yeah. People had no idea why we were even talking about it. Yeah. And now there's a law and it was passed by groups that in the past had said, well, we want to ban hunting state by state. Of course, the hunters thought it was an anti-hunting rule. Right. right. Well, and because what else the could science, it possibly be? <laughs> and, and this comes full circle back to what right. you said. I don't know why some people have labeled the Peregrine Fund as an anti-hunting group. I'll tell you how it came about. It was too easy to put two and two together. They saw me go and present to the California Fish and Game Commission on two occasions. About what you guys were finding in Arizona? About our science. Okay. The reason we went there to present our science is to make sure that those other groups that I so fondly uh, recalled a moment ago made sure they weren't presenting it for us because they have an agenda. Right. Our agenda was to get to the bottom of the asking the question, where in the hell is this coming from? Yeah. Their agenda was what can they do with our science? To, to achieve their goal. Whatever their fundraising yeah. or their check the box, look at what we've done <laughs> look for at conservation. Look what we did for conservation, yeah. even though it's an unenforceable, we won't even, yeah, right. we yeah, even get into so that. Earlier <laughs> when you talked, you, you used a term in, in the sense the audience can't see you kind of feigning some uh, sarcasm here. You said conservation groups and you kind of had this look like they call themselves. Con were you they do. Okay. Yeah. You were referring to like, and I have no problem saying who they are. I, if I recall correctly, it was the Center for Biological Diversity, the Sierra Club, and the Humane Society of the United States were kind of the ones pushing that in California, right? Yeah, you don't have to dig deep to find out the full no, list. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm already a poster <laughs> child for the Center for Biological Diversity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they uh, I'm sure they have a dartboard there that they yeah. throw, and Randy Newberg's one of the pictures. You know, I just, but, I, yeah, I just hate, I mean, as one of the participating bi 
biologist on the ground doing this work who's also a hunter. And okay, so maybe I just said what my bias is. I'm a hunter. Okay, but, fine. But but we looked into this as conservationists working on a conservation issue. And now we're proposing a solution that we think is reasonable and that can work and that is working for small subsets like our deer hunters. Mm-hmm. 87%, show me, particip- show me compliance to laws that matches the participation we've achieved in Arizona of 87% of the deer hunters there on the Kaibab. Yeah. Now it's just the deer hunters and it's just the Kaibab. So right, we haven't but- solved the availability of lead problem, but we've proved proven proof positive that this method does work yeah it's just hard and it's slow mm-hmm. and it's costly and what they say is we don't have time we need to ban it now and i always say to to reporters okay let's let's go down in, in fanciful land here if it's banned tomorrow those groups are going to have parades in the streets saying that they've saved these species right. but you know what happens to us the people who actually do the work we're still out there doing it And we're still going to be treating birds for lead poisoning until the people that can solve the problem actually believe it's worthy of solving. Yeah. And I made the joke the other day in a side conversation with you. It's like weight loss. I know the equation. I know how to lose weight, but I don't because I'm a function of my tradition and my history and what's comfortable to me. Bacon's delicious, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) That's part of it. And and when I, uh, you know, meet an untimely death because of of my chosen path to try and play football and get really big and then not do anything to get rid of the big part, um, yeah, know that I enjoyed the hell out of it. And I I didn't do it unknowingly. I I did it knowingly. So, yeah. To me, it's just a contrast. So you got the... Yeah, I'm not going to be as polite as you when you called them sarcastically conservation groups. They're not conservation groups. They've never done anything to conserve anything. I don't want them, and that's part of when I, as I've learned more and more about this, is part of why I wanted to have you guys on the podcast because the in today's over-static world of information overload, people are looking for give me something quick and easy to make my decision from. Yeah. And they have the the easy job of just saying, oh, ban it. Oh, you know, hunters are killing all the blah, blah, blah. Well, it's an easy and, sale if you can show a video of a bird dying of lead poisoning. Right. I mean, you... They've got the easy job. That's easy. And unfortunately, because you guys develop science that was intended to be used for a different purpose to, like you said, get to answers, and that science got hijacked... Yeah. No, you guys get thrown in oh. the the mix of like like I said at the beginning of the podcast. I I had this in my mind, not that I knew anything about the Peregrine Fund, but I just heard oh those assholes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd heard that before. I yeah. read it in I think even in some of my hunting magazines. Yeah. It's like wh- well, it all comes back to that legislation in in California. Yeah, and it wasn't like you guys wanted. California's law. You guys are working for a different solution. They just came and grabbed your science and said, we'll paint this a certain way when, I mean, the science is supposed to be just facts and information. And then we as a society decide what we do with that science. That, that is policy. Policy isn't just science. I think we all live in this fanciful world that we say, oh, if it's logical, then we'll do it. <laughs> no, we operate on emotion, folks. 
and a little bit of science. And sometimes we're embarrassed by how long it takes to finally do something to prevent preventable, you know, uh, hardship for people, for ourselves and our self-governance. But that's the beauty of the democratic process. And I will just as... If you look up my presentation to the commission, and that's what I had to tell some of those groups that wrote some of those things about the Peregrine Fund, I banged on their doors until they finally had an audience with us. And I said, you don't know us. If you knew us, you would think you would reframe your vision and view of us and think, wow, we're actually some of those conservationists, hunters leading the way by being on the tip of the spear. When I presented to California, I said, please, folks, please don't take this study, this preliminary study, and go too far too fast. And actually, I didn't say it that way. I said it the way I normally say it. I said, don't let the cart roll down the hill without the horses in front. Yeah. Get your ducks in a row. Go talk to your hunters. Share with them this information like we're doing in Arizona, and they will respond in kind. Yeah. But if you slap them on the forehead and say, you know, you're going to do this now, I'm sorry. I know these people. I am these people. That's not going to go well. And it did not. So quick story about that. The company that I worked for there before, like right after some of that research came out, they started doing some outreach. They had one outreach event before the legislation passed, doing a shoot, like I talked mm-hmm. about, letting people come try it. The company I'd worked for had done a lot of invasive species removal. And well, so they're they one had of the co-founders of, of our partnership. Of a partnership. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of experience with non-lead. partnership is the North American non-lead partnership. That's right. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Um, But they had lots of sporting groups, um, lots of other folks in California engaged and talking about the issue. And from my understanding, I wasn't there at it, but it was a very positive experience for everybody. As soon as that legislation passed, obviously, all that went away. There was no more calling folks up and saying, hey, can we share some information with you? Now it's, now we don't want to touch that with a 10-foot Slippery pole, slope, man. Right? Yeah. Now it's, well, you're just trying to attack our firearms rights, our hunting rights. And that's the boulder we've been digging ourselves out from under for the last 10 years. Huh. And part of the reason I work in Oregon right now is to try to avoid having that boulder happen all over again. And, and that's in a, Oregon. In Oregon. And that's the goal of our partnership. We want to aid, whether it be an agency or a hunter group, or or a conservation group, a wildlife society, whatever, or an individual. Mm -hmm. We want to aid people in initiating these conversations about this subject and help them navigate it because we've learned through our our trial and error of what works and what doesn't. And we think we can fast track it. We think we can get the the ingredients down to, you know, three ingredients and here you go, you can make a cracker and now you eat it and you're successful. That's the kind of thing we want to do. And so for Oregon, Oregon's the, the most recent signatory and, um, you know, we're working to, we, we only finished this logo and formalized this group a couple of weeks, actually a week before the BHA rendezvous. We still haven't done our press release yet, but yeah. we do have members who have signed up and that resolution that I mentioned where we say that, you know, we're, we're for wildlife conservation and our hunting heritage. That's, that's our goal. Yeah. Information, education, no litigation, no legislation. We're looking for partners yeah. in, in navigating this, this sticky situation. And we have Arizona Game and Fish, Utah Division of Natural Resources, um, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Those are our three agencies so far that have, that have teamed up with us. Uh-huh. Then we have, uh, of course, the, the founders are the Institute for Wildlife Studies that, that Leland mentioned, the Oregon Zoo and the Peregrine Fund, and then uh, another individual who's been doing this forever. There were four of us who came together. And then we have some some 
uh, uh, hunter groups already. We have Arizona Elk Society yeah. lended their name in support of the intent as defined by that resolution, this partnership. And so we have Arizona Elk Society, Arizona Mule Deer Organization. Um, we have the Arizona chapter of the National Wild Turkey Federation. Basically what it comes down to is every group we've been able to engage with and develop a relationship with and help walk them through this process of our understanding of the issue and what can be done about it, we eventually get their support. When it goes to national, however, now we are talking the big leagues. Now we're talking, we are now involved fully in the politics. We are not involved in the politics, but the politics are influencing who is willing to join up with us. And so what we're hoping to show by sponsoring, you know, the Western Association uh, uh, Fish and Wildlife agencies meeting we're going to be a a part sponsor there to have our booth there um and you can imagine initially they're like wow you guys are coming here it's like well yeah yeah, we kind of have to you guys are the ones who deal in this currency (laughs) so yeah you betcha or when we're at bha or when we're at shot show or we're you know they say wow you're you're in the lion's den here it's like no i'm a lion (laughs) (laughs) why shouldn't i be (laughs) that's cool (laughs) well i we're going to have to do another podcast in Arizona. I I feel like we're just touching on this. And I guess I always am looking for a takeaway. And for me, you guys tell me if my takeaway is wrong, is you're not telling people, oh, you have to shoot non-lead ammo. What you're saying is somehow get the lead out of the field, either by not putting it there in the first place or properly getting rid of gut piles and carcasses that, yeah. scavengers and raptors might ingest. Hey, absolutely. Absolutely. That, you, that, you shoot a coyote <clears throat> and it's a legal, legal activity. Yeah. I, I've done it. Hell, I, I was paid for it for a while. Um, and you leave it in the field, the potential for exposure is there. If you want to eliminate that potential for exposure, shoot non lead or remove the carcass. And this mm-hmm. just isn't game. This is any animal. Right. If when I worked on cattle ranches and we dispatched her, I learned that word in game fish, dispatched. If we, that's radio lingo. Yeah. In the that, ranch world, they I say shot, put down. Yeah, put yeah. down, exactly. But really what, and for some people you have to say, I killed it, you know, I yeah. shot it in the head with my sidearm. <laughs> okay, so when you when you shoot something in the head with your sidearm, what do you shoot it with? Whatever's in there. Yeah. Well, lead if it's animal. lead, even if it's a cow, and what do you think? You know, we did as ranchers, we'd pull those things out to make sure the critters could could do good work and clean it up. Yeah. If you use lead, you've introduced a possibility for lead exposure. So the way to avoid it is to either use non-lead or remove those remains. Okay. I'll just tell you, I hate carrying stuff. I don't have to. So I use non-lead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just makes uh, my life easier. Right. Yeah. Marcus is looking at me like, Randy, are you going to make me haul that elk gut pile <laughs> three miles out of the hills? <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think, um, and I think too, more than all of that, and this is not just about this issue, and you guys are doing a great job of it, and there's a lot of folks doing it these days with these podcasts and taking this more aggressive approach of educating ourselves, just do that. Educate yourself before you form an uninformed opinion and prove an ass yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, on that point, we do the huntingwithnonled.org website has a lot of info on it that people can look at. Yeah, and sorry um, we don't have a website yet for the partnership, but huntingwithnonled.org is right now our go-to. That's yeah. one of our co-founders. Um, okay. You can go to Oregon Zoo, you can go to ODFW, Arizona Game and Fish, Utah. They all have small pieces of, of mm-hmm. reference material and where you can go to learn more about yeah. this. The Peregrine Fund does too. Um, but uh, yeah, educate yourself and arm yourself with that information. And for those non-hunters and, and maybe some uh, 
hopeful hunters that want to be a part of this, man, you're, you're getting the dope right off the bat. And so <laughs> you have a real opportunity to, to do something good for the future of hunting. Yeah. So I have a question. If we can like take a step back, a couple steps back potentially. We may have jumped a few. No. <laughs> yeah. I'm not much of a guess, dancer, but I can jump I mean, back. So you convinced me that like especially on the Kaibab Plateau, you know, or yeah. where the condors are, that this non using non lead is very important because the, I mean the condors are a very small population. Yeah. So like in a large population of eagles or so, where right. raptors are doing well. And I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit, you know, trying to, trying to. Yeah, so real real quick, if we're we're looking at these larger eagle populations, things like that, are we seeing massive declines? Right. No. But what we are seeing is very large portions of populations with high levels of lead exposure with an unknown consequence down the line, and it's unmanaged. This is the big thing for me, Right. right? As hunters and as people who care about wildlife, we manage our impacts. We don't manage any of this exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we can't manage it, then how do we know what's going on? How do we control it? And um, I'll, and so, I'll just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go straight up uh, good old boy here because that's yeah. who I am. <laughs> and, and I'm supposed to be, you know, working on my PhD and all that because I do want to be able to compete in that arena too. But I'm just going to be a good old boy here. You see that I'm holding up an epoxy that contains fragments from bullets that we've shot into our chest chambers where we collect fragments. We, we basically shoot bullets into these water chambers of both lead and non-lead and every different style so you can see the various levels of fragmentation of each bullet design. All right, so we're looking at these fragments in here. Mm-hmm. Knowing what you know about lead as a, a naturally occurring element that's been used by humans since the times of the Romans, how much of that lead do you think is all right to feed to wildlife? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's I don't know. The, I'm, I'm looking at it, and I'm not an, I'm not going to answer it for wildlife. How much of that lead do I want to eat myself? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and that, see, and we're nervous. And I'll uh. say straight up, Randy, we don't we don't go down that path because the science is not a hundred percent solid there yet. Yeah. But I just ask people, it's okay. It's like a, a little dog poop in the cookie jar. I mean, how much is okay? Well, none. <laughs> <laughs> none. There's a great joke about that, and you know, marijuana uh, cigarettes with families and. The kids trying it. Boy, we're really getting yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right? But but I think that's so so that's it. And some will say, and I've had some say to me, well, I don't know that it hurts them. So yeah, I think a little bit's okay. So my next question is, how much do you think's okay for us as hunters to say we are okay with feeding the wildlife to the non-hunting community? Right. A known toxin, the 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 water crisis, the the lead in in Flint, Michigan. Yeah. The amount of lead they're talking about per cup of water compared yeah. to eating it is seems laughable to me. But I'm just going to go ahead and say I'm not a scientist who's who's reviewing those papers. But I'm just right. saying, knowing what I know about lead, and more importantly, what my wife knew about lead, because I too was slow to change. Yeah, we were doing this fragmentation study in Wyoming, and on our days off, which we tried to have a few so we could go bird hunting. Yeah. We shot some huns, which I'd never shot before. Yeah. We had some pheasant. We had some uh, some uh, sharp-tailed grouse. And I called my wife, and I was boasting. I said, man, this is awesome. We're not only going to have all the deer from this deer study, this fragmentation study. We're also going to have all these game birds. She <laughs> said, what did you shoot the game birds with? I said, well, my 410 and my 12-gauge. What do you mean, what did I shoot it with? I shot it with a shotgun. She's like, what ammo? Stupid. I was like, uh, 
lead. It's like, do you think that it's different lead than the other lead you're studying in fragments and the effect it has on condors? I said, well, we don't know that it's affecting us. She said, do you have to? <laughs> and I said, what all fathers should say. I mean, and husbands, right? What, what we usually say in those situations where we find out we get caught and it's, oh, okay. <laughs> You're probably right. So, so anyway. Well, I guess I, I understand that. I mean, there's definitely, you've convinced me, all right, that these eagle or, you know, raptors are dying or being affected from the lead. But like on a population level in yeah. areas where raptors are doing fine. And maybe that's a so, thing where you, we just don't know yet, but it's better to take a preemptive is approach. Is precautionary that kind of approach? But you also consider if in, if you think about the North American model, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we manage on populations, but we also manage on by the individual because we manage the individual animal that we shoot and the impact that our bullet has on that. Right. right. This is still our bullet. We still have to manage the impact of that. Mm hmm. Um, so for me, that's, that's the key point. And we said it earlier, one shot, one kill. The reason for that is because you, you own that bullet from point it leaves the firearm till the end of its life cycle in the environment, not just until the animal you shot dies. Mm -hmm. So if you're responsible for killing both the deer or elk or anything else, and then you also have a raptor consume that, you're also responsible for that bird. And if you're not making use of that, then again we're wasting species unnecessarily. So there's, there's two levels. There's exposure happening at very high proportions in the population and the potential impacts of that on the population itself. But then there's also our requirements and responsibilities as responsible managers of wildlife and how that all works. And, and yeah, I know you don't like how I'm saying I, this. I but, do. I, I'm getting shifty yeah. in my seat. Yeah. yeah. And I know we're, we're running out of time, but it's... Yeah, we got three minutes. Two okay. Minutes. <laughs> the reason I get shifty is here. I think you have to separate two things. The information we're providing, we're providing so hunters can make a more informed decision. What you're talking about is population level effects and regulation and management. Yeah. And so they are two very different things, and we should be clear to define that, that you've heard our bias and our, our opinion on this subject and our opinion as hunters and what we think, what our personal ethics are on this. We're not telling you to adopt ours. We're saying take this information and make a more informed decision for yourself. Now, if it's affecting at a population-limiting level, that's usually when states get involved, and that's right. when they start talking about regulation. That's their business. That's what they do. We are here to provide the science. And yes, we are here banging the drum of, hey, folks, fellow hunters, take note of this. We can do a good thing here, and it's going to benefit us for a lot of reasons, not just the wildlife, but the future of hunting. Take a lot of consideration when you make your decision. And if you can find your way to support things like this partnership, um, I think it's going to bode well for, for the future of hunting. And, yeah. and I think it's going to bode well for the image that we as hunters have. And, and we're out there pounding the streets, talking to the non-hunting and even the anti-hunting groups, and as much grief as we've given CBD, I've off offered to engage with them so they can up their game as well, both sides of that spectrum. Yeah. I've offered, hey, let's make sure that when a press release comes out, you at least get the facts straight. Well, facts are not a currency center for biological diversity deals in. <laughs> if, if facts were money, they'd be bankrupt. <laughs> and that, that's not coming from Chris or from Leland. Yeah. That's coming from Randy Newberg, who thinks the Center for Biological Diversity... We'll hold that for a different <laughs> podcast. Man, I, 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 I appreciate this and, so. and appreciate the opportunity. 
Yeah, I'm sorry we got to run, guys, but I reserved the room for a period of time, and I can hear the rumblings out in the hallway there of, when's Newberg going to get out of there? I'm going to have to go and burst in there. Yeah. But but we're going to continue this podcast in January Great. in Arizona, and we're going to do it over some hawk or falcon-killed waterfowl. Oh, you're going to love it, man. It's going to change your life. Will we be able... You think we'll have a camera that can capture a peregrine dive bombing at 200 miles an hour? Well, we have the camera. I just don't know if we can uh, (laughs) have the camera operator... Skilled enough to yeah. follow us. Yeah. Well, we'll hopefully, we'll hopefully give you several, uh, you know, several passes. Several tries, and, uh, and, and they don't—they're capable of those speeds. But yeah. you, you'll you'll see it. Yeah, cool. you start wide and start start tightening up the shot, and you're going to be impressed. Guys, so, I can't thank you enough for uh, being on the podcast and for the great work you're doing. And really, I think you guys need a lot of accolades for the fact that you are trying to represent this from the hunter's perspective. You are hunters. And just with the popular media being the tidal wave it is, you guys have a hard job. Yeah. And I appreciate that you guys are sticking to your guns. You betcha. Yeah. We'll always stick by our guns. <laughs> We're that way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and folks, thanks for listening. Until the next time, uh, have a good summer. I'll give you a walleye fishing update on the next podcast.